Hey there, welcome to another installment of the Pad Verb Podcast. I'm your host, KMO, and in this episode of the podcast, I'm going to speak to, well, I've already spoken to him a couple weeks ago, in fact, but uh, you're going to hear a conversation between me and Philip Dusick. That last name is D-O-U-S-E-K, and Philip is with an F and one L. He's the author of a book called Flock Without Birds, and while I'm holding the hardcover in my hand, it's really two books. I mean, it's one object in my hand, but when you look at it, it's very striking. It has two front covers, so to look at the other front cover, you not only turn the book over, but you also flip it upside down. There's a story or a narrative about a character writing a book, and then the other book in the book is the book that that character wrote. (laughs) The front cover, the story portion, is... They're both black and white with purple lettering, but the uh, the light colors predominate on the story side. And when you flip it over to the, you know, the book side, the nonfiction book that is an element in the fictional story, then it's a mostly black cover. And when you turn it sideways, the edge on pages uh, of the story are white, but while the pages themselves, when you open the book, are white on the, uh, the nonfiction part, From the exterior, they appear black. So it's a very striking object, this book. Now, as I say, I didn't actually possess the book when I talked to the author. Uh, I was in possession of a PDF copy of the whole project, but that's not a comfortable way for me to read, really, and I didn't get very far with it, unfortunately. So Philip and I mostly just talked about things that we had in common rather than the specifics of his book. But... Other people who have read his book uh, rave about it, and in fact, I would like to read not the official description of the book, but a review, a short review that I got from Goodreads. This is by Goodreads user Branislav, who writes, Flock Without Birds by Philip Dusick is both a book and a story. Or to be more precise, it is a book in two volumes called The Book and The Story. The main character is a Cambridge PhD student, Adam whose dissertation is a pattern-seeking algorithm sifting through seemingly random events around the world, seeking proof of God's existence. Not by philosophy, as Aquinas, Anselm, or Callum would, but by drawing on legally and illegally available data. But the ineffable doesn't give an F about our attempts to prove its existence, nor will it give up its secrets for free. Strange things begin to happen, and Adam's struggle for knowledge becomes a fight to save his sanity and relationship. Flock Without Birds is filled with reflections on philosophy, thought, and mathematics. In some aspects, it reminded me of Umberto Eco's Foucault's Pendulum, only a bit more spiritual. The story is captivating and develops beautifully. Reading was a delight. All in all, one of the best novels I've read in a long time. So that excites me to uh, get started reading the novel. I have recently just unsubscribed from almost all of the streaming services that I've been subscribed to because I do want to focus on reading at night rather than watching the flickering screen. Although I am still maintaining my subscription to Apple Plus TV so that I can watch for all mankind. All right, so I'm going to play the conversation for you here in just a moment, but (laughs) I want to mention a couple of mistakes that I made in the the course of the conversation. And the first one is immediate, right up front. As I'm introducing the guest, I mentioned that he's speaking from Czechoslovakia. I'm 54 years old. The country of Czechoslovakia hasn't existed in 30 years. But uh, what this illustrates, I think, is, well, two things. First, here at age 54, 
I'm still navigating according to maps and databases, you know, in my head that I acquired in the 80s and before. And secondly, Philip, who was sitting in Prague, the Czech Republic, didn't correct me. Which makes me wonder what other mistakes I may have made that he might have noticed, but didn't say anything about. Uh, another mistake I made is in talking about the development of uh, neural networks as opposed to good old-fashioned AI. There was a huge breakthrough in neural network architecture in 2012, and it was Jeffrey Hinton, a cognitive psychologist and computer scientist, and his team who made that breakthrough discovery. In the actual conversation, the name that I pulled out of my memory was Gregory Hinton, which is not correct. It is Jeffrey Hinton, Jeffrey with a G. So what other mistakes escaped my lips that uh, Philip didn't correct me on? Well, if you notice any, make a mental note and send them my way. All right, here's my conversation with Philip Dusick. You're listening to the Padverb Podcast. I am your host, KMO, and I am speaking with Philip Dusik, who is in Prague, Czechoslovakia, and he's the author of a, a novel. It is called Flock Without Birds. Philip, it is good to talk to you. Yes, likewise. Hello, KMO. Uh, I regret to inform you, and in fact, I'm informing the audience because I already told you, I, I've been in possession of a PDF of your novel for uh, about a week and a half, and I haven't gotten very far into it. But I understand that the theme of the novel is a uh, young researcher who himself doesn't read. Uh, he is a programmer and a data scientist, and he is going to use the, the tools at his disposal and the things that work well for his mind to search for God. Have I got that right so far? Yes, yes. Okay. Well, that's, that's unfortunately as far as I can take the narrative, unless I'm going to get really granular and talk about an encounter in a park with somebody selling peanuts. So uh, let me ask you to just take a couple of minutes and expand not so much on the plot of the book, but on the themes. Uh, this is a book that um, has quite a few summaries. <laughs> <laughs> I think six of them on my website. And uh, each of them go after a, a different theme. So uh, it's not really a linear book with a single topic. Uh, it's an intersection of a number of uh, connected ideas. And it can be seen as a post-rationalist uh, manifest, I would say. Uh, it's basically a book about uh, someone who is a hardcore rationalist, and uh, it follows uh, his struggle with implementing this worldview in the real world. And as we follow the, the main hero, we basically get to redefine rationality. We get to look at what is truth and uh, what are its limits. And at the same time, we, together with the protagonist, learn what might be some other approaches to analyzing the world as, as we humans live it. Is there an autobiographical element to this? Do you consider yourself to be a post-rationalist, or have you, have you tried to get outside of the, uh, the confines of a rationalist worldview? Well, I, I think it's impossible to write a book uh, that does not have an autobiographical element, right? Whether that's fiction or not non-fiction, you know? you simply cannot get out of your own mind. So uh, this, this is a space that I have definitely been exploring. And as, as someone with a background in uh, mathematics and uh, computer science and economics, basically the, the hard scientist sciences, and someone who has been living around people with this background as well, you know, the, the sources of inspiration were, were definitely in the real world. 
the parts of your biography that overlap with the the character in that you know you're dissatisfied with rationalism you want to move beyond or outside of that frame where does that come to your biography i'll give you the 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 level two answer okay <laughs> uh one of the unofficial subtitles of the book is uh, truth is a fallacy okay and i think that's it's like one of the core ideas in in the book that is both controversial and uh, and quite significant. So I'll answer with how did I actually get to that phrase and uh, wh- why why do I say such a blasphemous uh, sentence? My background is in basically my, my professional background, uh, at least in the last ten years, is in data analytics and and data science. And admittedly, I started working in this field toward the end of me r- writing this book. Uh, but when you look at the usual description of what a data scientist should know, it's, it's this Venn diagram of three areas. It's uh, computer science, it's mathematics and, or statistics, and it's basically business expertise, right? So uh, when you look at my background, when I was saying, well, it's, it's these three areas, I found sort of my perfect playing ground in, in analytics and you know, my only issue when I was graduating was that, that there wasn't much of an analytics field, right? It, it, uh, it took another 10 years from the point when I graduated for the field to somehow start forming into an actual industry. And so working in data analytics for a number of years, I see something that I would call an inflation of truth. I often work with big data and my startup uh, was basically a an engine that analyzes big data and derives insights from that. And basically the problem I was always running into was, okay, here's 10 million or 100 million records. All of them are true in some sense. Everything we are recording about the world is in some sense true. But what do you do with that? How do you understand what's happening in a data set that has 100 million records? Right? Truth, uh, truth has been somehow a guiding decision-making and, and uh, information uh, selection principle for many people for a long time. And my experience was, well, th- this immense heap of data is true. We've simply recorded all of that. But how do we decide what's really important? So my startup, which is very much related to the book because it's building basically on the philosophical foundation of the book, has been resolving that question, what's important? So when you take a company, for example, with you know, 50,000 people, right? and let's say you are the, uh, the, the chief HR officer of, uh, of that company, how do you begin to understand what's happening with those 50,000 people? Like, you know, and business intelligence systems generally give you some overall numbers like, oh, you actually have 52,234 people in the company. Oh, that's great. Thank you. But how are they doing? You know, what are they missing? Like, which parts of the company are, are struggling? Uh, where are we, on the other hand, doing really well in terms of attracting talent? And uh, what skills are we missing? Like, these are basically questions about complexity. And I think complexity is is one of the biggest human challenges at the moment like dealing with complexity and truth truth as a selection criterion is not super helpful when when we're trying to understand very complex systems 
So we have to go toward uh, different kinds of uh, selection criteria. So we have to be asking what's important. We have to be asking what's the right perspective, what's a useful perspective. How can we capture in a in a useful way the dynamics of a given system? And and that's leading us beyond the classical view of classical limited view of rationality driven by the search for truth. Let's move outside of the realm of uh, business analytics and into, say, politics. I have taken political quizzes, which are supposed to determine my political orientation. And I've you know, presented with four choices. Like, here's a statement, and here's uh, four possible responses to the statement. None of them describe me. And sometimes you'll, you'll take surveys where it's clear that the questions have been written in such a way as to direct you to you know, a certain outcome. And they're very unsatisfying. I mean, you're asked to select between three or four or five options, none of which capture you know, your particular sensibilities. And at the end of it, you, know, you might hit that submit and you might see the result that you get, but you're, you know, you're scowling. And it's like, no, that's not me. But um, if I answer the question and I hit submit, a data point has been collected. And if I understand you correctly, you're saying that there is truth in that. And to me, the truth in it is utterly trivial. It's like, yes, the person clicked this button on screen, that much we can agree on. But beyond that, you know, the, the bias is inherent in the formulation of the questions. Uh, it doesn't really allow for truth. It seems like it was, it was deliberately designed to obscure the truth or to deny the truth. So why even invoke the notion of truth at that level? Hmm. Um. I don't think we are really able to capture almost anything about the world to satisfy stringent definitions of truth. Okay? And hence, I suggest we, we try to use other words than truth. <laughs> well, I'm very satisfied with that. You don't, you don't have to sell me okay. on that idea. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, if, if you're looking to understand the dynamics of a system, a complex adaptive system, yeah, invoking the notion of truth isn't really very helpful. I, I think with whichever definition of truth we start, whether it's mm -hmm. the fairly loose one that I was that I was using or the fairly stringent one that you are referring to, we will still, I think, get to the same point, which is we have to go through a series of immense simplifications whenever we want to say something about a complex system. Mm -hmm. And the word truth, whether in my sense or your sense, you know, is not super useful when we try to understand complex systems. So how about uh, predictive utility? Mm -hmm. You know, you describe a system formally mm -hmm. and uh, I look at it and I say, well, I can see all kinds of things that your description is not capturing. Mm -hmm. uh, why don't you generate a few predictions? Let's get start with a data set that we both agree on, and then you apply your model to it and make some predictions and let's see if they come to pass. If they do come to pass, well, then I might have to revisit my skepticism and say, well, maybe that is a pretty good model. It, it does seem to uh, get at the general workings of this system. And if your, your predictions do not come to pass, but you're still attached to the model, then there's all manner of, of intellectual apology that you can make. You know, you can, you can blame the data, uh, you can blame the formulation of, of the question, or, you know, you can claim you know, some, some act of God has uh, caused the, 
you know, the system which should have rendered uh, an accurate prediction to spit out nonsense. But um, to me, yeah, predictive utility is is a really strong correlation with the, ah, I'll say truth, but I would just say understanding <laughs> or comprehension. Right, right. I, I would agree with you there with just a few caveats. As long as we know that we are both talking about a model, as, as long as we know what the model is leaving out, what are, what are the types of events that the model is not able to capture, then, then absolutely. I think that's a pretty good way of you know, discussing our, our understanding of, of com- complex systems. Um, we still don't have a better one. Um, at least. Um, but the, I think the discussion needs to be fairly informed about even the limitations of models and of the specific model that we are using. So there is a famous train wreck of a podcast conversation. It was the first podcast conversation between Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson. Uh, I was just talking about it yesterday uh, <laughs> with a friend of mine. And they got stuck wrestling over conflicting definitions of truth. And it was infuriating as a listener. So stepping in here as the listener advocate, uh, I'm going to say as much as I enjoy rolling around in the weeds on this topic, we should push on Uh, that the general question that I asked, and I haven't gotten a uh, satisfying answer yet is where, where are the uncomfortable confines of rationality for you such that you would want to break free of them and even define yourself as a post-rationalist. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm not quite happy with rationality as a starting point for defining an approach to, to reality. Okay? To me, there are layers that precede rationality and that we cannot do away with, such as our consciousness, for example. Or, you know, in other words, the role of the observer and at the same time, just the whole, the whole human psyche. And so my, I would say my quip with rationality is that it attempts to abstract from humans, uh, but it's the humans doing the abstraction. So I don't think we can abstract from consciousness and the problems associated with that, which is things like, how is it possible that something even exists? How is it possible that it is conscious to be able to be asking these questions and so on. There's, there's a whole can of worms there. Um, the second one is it's humans having these conversations about rationality. And we cannot really abstract from emotions, from our drives, desires, from uh, our limitations, from um, our inherently subjective worldviews. And it is only on these two layers, you know, that we're building the third one, which is a layer of ideas. And I'm not quite satisfied with those approaches that try to ignore those two and say, okay, well, let's assume, let's assume there is an objective reality and an objective world, and we can discuss that, right? I, I think that is basically intellectually dishonest. How so? Because it is a conscious, subjective mind imagining an objective world rather than the other way around, rather than an objective world producing a subjective discussion, if, if you're following me. Um, 
there is subjectivity. We don't have direct access to, you know, the real world or objective reality. If such a thing exists, we have to infer its properties and its principles based on our experience. Um, I, I have no issue with any of that. My question to you is one of, you know, personal experience and biography, and you're, you're asking in, you're, you're answering with very general abstract uh, answers. So let me see if I can get at the personal. Is there any experience that you had that you can recount uh, that illustrates or at least, you know, marks in time when it was you became, or you started to realize that you were dissatisfied with notions of rationality or objectivity or um, thinking that our subjective impressions have any more you know, accuracy or validity than, than they really do. Is there something in your biography that, that, you know, a colorful story you could relate that would really illustrate this for a listener who might, you know, be having difficulty getting at the substance of what you've been saying so far? Mm. Well, I can tell you a story about perspectives. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so rather than going after a singular truth, I suggest we think, for example, in terms of perspectives. I, I think that's a more useful sort of uh, starting point. And it's a mm -hmm. it's a view that's couched more in the subjective experience of uh, of reality and so on. Okay, so I hope this is a th th this will make sense. When I was writing my book, uh, and this ties together, I think the the, the problem uh, I was describing with big data and uh, and uh, and truth and and all of that. So when I was writing my book, I found myself at one point having about 300 pages of text and 1500 individual notes okay and um so i had my uh, 1500 notes mm -hmm. and i was trying to understand what is there like how do i actually take those notes and somehow incorporate them into the text of the book and it took me three weeks to actually copy those notes into uh, a spreadsheet. You know, I'm being a tech and analytics guy, like I couldn't think of anything better. Uh, then I was, for another two weeks, I was tagging the notes and prioritizing and so on. And I still couldn't wrap my head around like what to do with that. It was, you know, three full moleskins of, of, uh, of notes. And eventually I downloaded a visualization software and Within about 20 minutes, I loaded the spreadsheet into the software and it showed me a map of those nodes a, a, in the form of a network, a graph. And suddenly, after weeks of work, within a moment, I saw exactly what I was writing about. I saw the relationships. I, you know, I saw one picture of all those 1500 nodes with the most important topics uh, that uh, the notes were related to and their relationships. And th that was a really transformative experience for me um, because when you look at those two perspectives, the original one, you know, I was struggling basically with trying to understand those notes as if they were individual objects, as a list, right? Or as a mm -hmm. spreadsheet. Flip the perspective, show the relationships, show the network, and suddenly it starts making sense. And that is one of the main ideas in the book as well. It's basically that that is you know, one of the shifts in the, the classical definition of rationality that I'm that I'm suggesting there is let's look for different perspectives and uh, 
that might be a lot more useful than uh, than following a single version of true. Let's move to a very different uh, conceptual territory. The book is about a data scientist who's using the tools of his profession to look for God. What's your interest in God? Okay, my, my answer will be in, in the vein of my previous answers. Of course. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so many people, many people seem to be going with with one or the other assumption when it comes to God. Like either they believe in God and they, uh, whoever believes in God basically assumes that God exists and then behaves as if, uh, as if he did. Or people who assume uh, there is no God, again, live with the assumption that there is no God. And my protagonist in the book basically says, this is not what I want to do. If, if I don't know an answer to a question, I want to find an answer. And the answer to the question, is there a God, is, is really fundamental to him. So, because he says, I, I would be living in a pretty different universe and with pretty different values and pretty different personal meaning, depending on the condition, whether there is God or, or not. And so he decides to apply all of, the, all of his energies and resources to finding the answer to this question. Well, it seems the nature of God would be more important than the existence of God. Like you can, you can define God in such a way that it's his, her, their, you know, existence is undeniable. Like God could just be the, the totality of all that exists. And so the question is, you know, in terms of you're going to live your life differently if you think God exists, really the question is, does God care how you live? Uh, are you able to live in a way that God wouldn't approve of? And if not, you know, if God has a plan, if God is omniscient and set the universe in motion, knowing exactly where it would go, then, you know, the idea that a, an individual's choices are offensive to God, that's not really coherent. So, you know, the nature of God, if you're thinking about living your life differently, then what you want to know is, does God know that I exist? Does God care? what I do? Is God going to punish me if I do the wrong thing? Is God going to reward me if I do the right thing? And if so, what is the right thing? How do I know it? How do I know God's mind? How do I know God's desires and intentions? But to me, the, the, the question of does God exist is really the least interesting of all those questions, and particularly in terms of somebody deciding, you know, I'm going to live my life differently if I think there is a God. Right. Well, I don't think there are many people, though, who would define God as the totality of a materialist universe. Would you? Well, pantheists. Uh, I don't think they define... Oh, pantheists. Yeah, pan just being everything. Right. Sure. Right. But pantheism, in my understanding, involves the conscious presence within everything, right? Uh, The the element of consciousness is is pretty important there. I I think that the, the... A pantheist would say that the totality of all that exists is God and it is holy. Uh, I, I think that consciousness would be maybe an assumption, but I don't think it's necessarily elemental to the definition of you know whether or not the totality of existence is is holy or is divine. Right. I mean, it's difficult for us as conscious beings to consider you know a great organizing force that itself doesn't exhibit consciousness. But, you know, I'm reminded of um, a Bruce Sterling short story, which just got adapted into a really excellent segment of the Netflix show, Love, Death and Robots. It's called The Swarm. 
and there is this this you know organized collection of genetically unrelated entities they come from different planets different ecosystems but they've been you know correlated or corralled into this highly systematic like hive creature called the swarm and uh, a couple of humans have infiltrated the swarm and they're looking to subvert it and basically bring it in under human control to service human expansion into the universe and uh, the swarm the swarm is not intelligent it doesn't value intelligence but it has been there have been many attempts in the past by intelligent civilizations to subvert the swarm and you know to uh, to hijack it and so it has systems of dealing with intelligent attackers which involve it you know for a time creating an intelligent element in and of, inside of itself you know to interact with these intelligent invaders but it explicitly states intelligence is not it's not a reliable survival strategy it is not sustainable it's not even particularly useful we keep it as a capability in our back pocket to deal with interlopers like you but for the most part as soon as you're gone we're going to pack intelligence away because we don't we don't think much of it we don't value it it doesn't really uh, it doesn't service our agenda to organize and propagate you know it's 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 it is a flawed survival strategy that pretty much everybody who adopts it you know, as soon as they adopt it, they're on a short timeline to destruction. So we don't mess with it. Um, and I could see, I could see God taking the same view. You know, it's it's a um, to call it a view. You know, is is sort of self contradictory. But adopting that same priority about intelligence that being conscious doesn't really help. <laughs> it creates suffering where suffering doesn't need to exist. And for the most part, we avoid it. And if you look out into the cosmos, you can see what you don't see it much or any evidence of a lot of intelligence out there. What you see seemingly is a lot of stuff that isn't self-conscious. It isn't experiencing anything. And you know, the antinatalists would argue that that's for the best, that here in our little blue biosphere, this is the nexus of suffering in the observable universe. And we should stop doing that. You know, we should stop procreating and, and creating new generations to suffer. Just look out into the cosmos to see the wisdom of, to see God's wisdom, you know, of how things for the most part should be organized. Here's how it works best. And, you know, we as conscious entities have trouble even talking about uh, a system prioritizing non-intelligence, non-conscious experience, or, you know, a lack of experience. It's, very difficult for us to even put into words, but, or, you know, much less, you, you can say it, but it's, it's hard to inhabit it. And it's hard to live it because we are conscious beings. But from my perspective, pantheism in and of itself does not imply that the universe as a whole has memories, has an agenda, has preferences, you know, or, or has any sense of self. Like that is another layer on pantheism. That's an overlay. You know, that's, that's sort of bringing in common sense uh, notions about the existence of God and applying them to this concept. But I think the concept, it, it stands without them. Right. Well, there are all these ways we can think about the concept, right? And there are all these pro properties potentially mm -hmm. that we can be that we can be discussing. Yeah. But your, your, your narrator, I would say, is looking, he's concerned about whether uh, a conscious God with an agenda exists. You know, an agenda which can be violated via human choice. Right. Well, the, so the hypothesis that uh, the 
uh, that the protagonist is mm-hmm. basically trying to prove or disprove is whether there there's something that could be called traces of God within mm-hmm. within our society, right? So you know, he if, if there is something that you want to call a God, but uh, there's no interference, then sure, there is essentially you know th- th- there isn't much value there in in knowing that it exists, right? But uh, right. W- what he's searching for is is the bleed or or the you know the the, the pattern that uh, that might be detectable if there is such a being. And the way he goes about it is is looking at lots of uh, different data points about us as, as people and analyzing whether events that we would consider to be random really are random under scrutiny or whether there is, uh, there is some underlying pattern among them that can be tracked. And how would you search for that? Or how does your character search for that? So my character, he, he looks for databases mm-hmm. like um, of human events and looks for basically data points that you would consider random. So he has the databases of um, he has some insurance databases, for example, with uh, he gets his hands on that show basically details about um, that, that insurance companies track, uh, which is demographics, which is uh, different kind of kinds of representations of of, of people, and then uh, he looks at. The other, other kinds of events. He looks at uh, uh, disasters, for example. Uh, he looks at police records and so on. And, and uh, so he's trying to piece together, basically, whether the information that he can piece together about characteristics of people, whether it somehow crosses together with, uh, with the events uh, that happen to those people. You know, <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned insurance. I, uh, I have worked in the insurance industry and it is simultaneously venal and rife with deception. And yet at the same time, the insurance industry and the, the actuarial portion of it is hyper-focused on objective truth. You know, they, they want to know, they want to know enough about a person or an enterprise to accurately assess the risk of failure, you know, in the person, in the case of a person, injury or death, in the case of a, a business, you know, bankruptcy, and then they need to understand it well enough that they can assign a numerical value to it, and then plug that into other various models to basically quantify risk in as objective a fashion as possible. Because if they let any bias into that, it's going to cost them money, you know. And this is an insur- This is an industry which is hyper focused on money. And risk and quantification. So it's it's a, in my experience, a jarring contrast between, you know, really greedy, self-absorbed, base human behavior, but also mixed with very sophisticated methodologies for eliminating bias, you know, and eliminating agenda, other than the agenda of make a profit. But uh, you know, for them to make a profit, for them to succeed, they have to be exceptionally good at observation, quantification, modeling, and prediction, which, you know, from my perspective, that's, that's the path that gets you closest to objective reality. It might not be very interesting to us as social mammals, but uh, in terms of, you know, saying which model is closer to objective reality, I think that actuaries and, uh, you know, insurance executives are, are really pretty good epistemologists. Mm-hmm. Sure. I agree. I agree. 
And my protagonist- Good at epistemology, bad at ethics. Right, right, right. So my protagonist is not trying to compete with uh, the insurance companies, uh, right? He's- No, he's he's looking for God. (laughs) Exactly. He's looking for God by pulling together the disparate data sources and trying to to look for patterns between them. So uh, have you read the novel, uh, Carl Sagan's novel, Cosmos? No, no, I have not. Okay, so there are, of course, there are elements of it that are not going to fit neatly into a Hollywood movie. I think it's a pretty good movie, you know, in terms of uh, adaptations of science fiction novels, it's pretty good. But, you know, it's there, there's going to be geeky, mathy stuff in it that's just not going to work on screen. And, uh, you know, spoiler, <laughs> spoiler alert, at the end of the novel, the main character, after she's gone and had her cosmic adventure, she's still looking for God in numbers. And she's got... Um, a computer that is calculating pi out to, you know, absurd lengths. And uh, pi, you know, is a a non-repeating, non-terminating decimal. So you can calculate it, you know, to infinity. And she's got computers doing that. And eventually, if you calculate in the novel, if you calculate pi out far enough, you'll reach a point where instead of getting this string of seemingly random numbers, you get just ones and zeros. And if you arrange them in a certain way, the... I don't remember if it's the ones or the zeros, but there's basically a big circle that gets drawn on a graph. And this is basically the signature of God, that uh, God has encoded his, her, it's their you know, existence into numbers. And that if you just spend enough time with the numbers, you will eventually encounter pretty undisputable proof that there is design, you know, intelligent, deliberate design at work at the very fundamental level of you know, material reality. Again, it doesn't work on screen, but that's that's how it works in the book. <laughs> right. Well, um, that might be one of the avenues. But yeah, Carl Sagan was thinking along these lines, but he didn't live in the world that you grew up in. You know, he his world didn't have ubiquitous sensors and databases just proliferating at, at unbelievable speed. You know, to be the grist for his mill, so he right. he had to delve into the sky and mathematics. Let me just mention that Slava is saying. There's also the movie Pi, yeah, the first uh, Darren Aronofsky film. Uh, Pi, stylized as the symbol, is a 1998 American neo-noir psychological thriller written and directed by Darren Aronofsky and his feature directorial debut. Yes, and it's black and white. It's shot, I think, in eight millimeter. It's uh, very lo-fi, but and there are there are sequences in Pi where the character is clearly thinking about numbers and complexity. But you know, how do you visualize that on a shoestring budget? So Aronofsky just points the camera at some leaves on a tree, you know, sort of moving in the wind, or just finding some element of uh, iterated fractal complexity in the physical environment and just holds the camera on it. So yeah, pie, fun, fun movie. I like it a lot. I've seen that one. Yeah. I've never seen Requiem for a Dream, and it's quite possible I never will. I hear it's just psychologically devastating, but I, I do enjoy the mind of Aronofsky, uh, particularly Noah. <laughs> Did you see his adaptation of Noah? No, no. The biblical story, it's it's nuts. <laughs> it's nuts. Yeah. L- love Aronofsky's films. Let's see. So searching for God in databases, what's, what would your character take as evidence? What's a hit? You know, what's, what's something that would indicate the presence of God? Right. A significant fractal pattern. So mm-hmm. you just mentioned fractals. So a significant fractal pattern. And, uh, you know... Uh, there's an artistic license here, okay? So uh, of course, it's a novel. Some, some caveat. <laughs> this is a novel. By the way, I wrote 
this as a piece of fiction, basically. And scientists using AI to answer philosophical questions. And a couple of years later, somehow this transformed, um, the, the abstract concept transformed into my startup, which was an AI looking to answer business questions. Okay, so we, in the book, uh, the bond concept is, of course, literary, but we've taken that and shown that uh, w when we focus that, some, some of these concepts can work basically in the real world. And what he's looking for are fractal patterns in and fractal similarities between, between the data. You know, we typically tend to think in terms of linear similarities uh, but when you take two different data sets how do you even how do you even decide whether they are in some way similar or not right there's that's a pretty wide question there and i'm i'm not going into a terrible detail in the book for sure but i i consider it an interesting interesting data science question well let me ask you about artificial intelligence mm -hmm. um you know when i was in grad school my emphasis was philosophy of science and philosophy of mind and uh this was in the, the mid nineties, like the early to mid nineties. And at the time, of course, I'm reading a lot about AI, but it's, um, it's very speculative. And in fact, there was, and I think it's, it's evaporated now. There was a, a big argument between advocates of what's called good old fashioned AI, which is to say, you know, very structured programming where everything is explicit in the mind of the programmer and he's, he or she is getting it down in, in the code or neural nets which wouldn't necessarily be explicitly trained, but which would be conditioned through either rewarding certain behavior or disincentivizing other behaviors of the system so that you, you know, you're training an algorithm rather than just conceiving of it and, and writing it down. And like in 2005, you know, when I'm in grad school, uh, 2012 was still seven years away. And you know, Gregory Hinton and his team um, basically bootstrapping that training of algorithms approach up into something very useful was off in the future. And there was no guarantee that it would ever happen. So it's very strange for me to revisit it now where that whole debate is utterly moot. It, there is no point in even engaging in it because there are so many just proliferating applications for trained algorithms right. rather than conceived and written algorithms. And um, like I've read, and it's, it strikes me as realistic that you know, there are innovative phases in the development of any technology. And then there are these long implementation phases where the possibilities of that innovative phase are, are played out. You know, they are, um, they're realized slowly over time, but it's a very different process than the, you know, the, the actual innovation. And it seems to me that the year 2012 was this high point of innovation in AI. And that since then, there hasn't been so much innovation innovation as there has been just iteration, you know, just implementing what was innovated 10 years ago now. But it, it still seems like, you know, even dumb, seemingly dumb algorithms that have no understanding of anything, but have hyper competence in a very narrow field, that's transforming the world around us and not always for the better. Well, that's, um, you know, when you look at the Gartner hype cycle, for example, uh, which describes the evolution of pretty much every in invention or innovation, that's how it works. Uh, so there's, there's first uh, the, the hype where we don't have much useful application, but people envision a lot of it. Mm -hmm. uh, there, there's, uh, there's a lot of talk about it, how this will change everything and so on. Uh, then, then that subsides into a kind of disillusionment uh, because the actual technology that we have on hand at the time isn't really uh, living up to the hype. And then through that trough of disillusionment, like we actually get 
to <laughs> the actual you know useful technology which then slowly over yeah over the next 10 years or so actually actually works through all the all the kinks and details of how to actually make uh, this idea work so even in an advanced field like ai and so on where you would think that we can code everything pretty quickly definitely the the gap or or between the uh, initial idea and a really widespread industrial use of that idea is probably somewhere around 20 years or so at least so the the gartner hype cycle which i i love the names on it like i've just called it up so there is there are simpler versions of it and more complex versions i'm looking at i think the simplest possible version of it and you have a a technology trigger so there are no expectations around the technology uh, at that time and then you have this rapid you know steep climb up to what they call the peak of inflated expectations which is where oh this technology is going to revolutionize everything it's going to change the world and then it doesn't and you fall steeply down into what you reference the trough of disillusionment and then slowly from there the people who maintain their interest in the technology and they continue to development then we get the slow climb again of the slope of enlightenment we're actually learning what the stuff is good for and then there's the plateau of productivity which you know then extends off to the the right side of the graph uh, presumably to you know, give way to another hype cycle for some other technology. But what's what's interesting to me is that the plateau of productivity is about half the height of the peak of inflated expectations. Right. So that uh, we we never do get to a point where the the initial mania for this thing is realized or justified. And at that point, you know, it, it gets to a plateau because our ideas are are not really evolving anymore around that. Right. Like when you take, for example cloud as an innovation today people take it for granted and yet we're probably somewhere around i don't know 30 percent or so 30 40 percent into the transition of technology from on-premise to the cloud you know it's a 20 year old concept when 10 years ago there was there was a strong debate about what you know what will happen with the cloud is everything shifting to the cloud or not well, these days we know we know how things are, we know how things stand, and for the next ten years, this shift uh, will still continue. We will keep improving and improving on the technology, but most people will, at least most people in the technology world, will will just take it for granted. So there are these you know these hype cycles. They are layered on top of each other. This whenever in any actual technology that we're looking at, like let's say AI, AI is really the pinnacle of 20 of these hype cycle layers stacked on on top of each other and they are each of them is unfolding right it's you know and, and that's the hardware basically um it's it's the chips it's um it's the actual it's cloud as such right it's uh it's um all of the all of the technology that allows large clusters of CPUs to run in the cloud, uh, in the data centers, uh, like there's layers and layers of, of technology that's undergoing similar uh, hype cycles. Like th- that whole infrastructure, you know, that a company that wants to run an AI, uh, train an AI model that, that they simply purchase, that whole infrastructure actually is 10, 20 layers of, of innovation. And likewise, all of the software that actually that actually trains um, the models, that deploys uh, the models, um, you know, that tests them, and so on. It's it's just 
layers and layers and layers of improvements. What the Gartner hype cycle being just a two-dimensional representation with an X and a Y axis can't really, um, it can't display is that when a technology becomes very routine uh, and widely adopted, that you get unexpected applications of it, which can be very impactful. So, you know, building a facial recognition system, you know, in a university laboratory someplace uh, is interesting. And, you know, it's going to be important in terms of papers published and things like that. But when you build that technology into cheap cameras and you put 10 billion of them up in the world, all, all collecting data of who has been where at what time and in whose company, and then feeding that information into some other system, which is designed to, you know, map social structures, that's going to have an amazingly transformative you know, it's going to be transformative on society in ways that the people who were originally working on the facial recognition technology probably didn't anticipate or intend. And uh, that's, you know, that's going to be a Z axis, I think, on the, the, the Gartner hype cycle. But, you know, the early innovators and the early evangelists are seeing, you know, they're up on the peak of inflated expectations and they're looking out at this vista of a potential future and they're seeing things according to their desires and you know their understanding of the world and there's all manner of things potential applications that they're not considering and uh, that you just can't represent and on a two-dimensional graph yeah absolutely or or that they cannot you know or that they don't have the capacity to build right like I, you know i can give you my story we were actually a Gartner cool vendor uh, with my startup so we were basically selected by Gartner as one of the top three augmented analytics companies in the world in, in 2018. And the category uh, augmented analytics was really coined by Gartner about a year before that. And when we were starting our company, the category augmented analytics, which is what you were earlier describing as the as, as basically the confluence or collaboration between a human and an AI, right? Mm -hmm. in, in the field of analytics. Like that category didn't exist when we started building uh, our, our software. I don't think I'd ever heard the phrase before you mentioned it just now. Right, right. So our hype cycle, you know, wasn't drawn when we were starting our company. Then at one point, we were we started being in close contact with with Gartner. They said, "Okay, yes, we believe this is the direction in in which basically business intelligence is evolving. Uh, that AI is going to be helping more and more do the analysts' tasks uh, that um, they you know have to be done manually and so on." And we we somehow basically with a lucky timing and uh, some coincidence uh, get into you know at the right time into into the right focus of, of this emerging new field uh, that's today called uh, augmented analytics and um, we built our engine as a general purpose engine so we were using our approach we were analyzing all different kinds of data sets but for 20 30 companies that we could uh, that we could service uh, within the first uh, two years or so of our operation right and we saw you know, this is world changing, right? And we're a small startup somewhere from, you know, from, from Eastern Europe, from uh, operating from Prague. But we have a technology that could really transform how, how people can deal with complexity. Our engine can take in huge amounts of data and, and say, okay, well, these are the five or 10 most important stories or narratives 
uh, about the data set. And so it's all, you know, everything that we've been sort of talking about so far is kind of adding up here, right? And, and so when we were acquired uh, by, by a company called Workday, which is uh, basically the largest US uh, HR player in, in cloud HR software, we shrunk our focus significantly so that we can expand our footprint across their user base. You could expand your footprint across what? Across their customer base. Okay. Right. So we were trading our 30 actual customers and hundreds of thousands of potential customers in many different fields, like this very generic vision for a, a strictly focused execution of bringing this technology to several thousand customers who can use this in the field of, of HR to analyze their, their workforce. Right? And that was a really interesting mind shift uh, for us to go through as a company where you give up that, that abstract vision, which at the same time is extremely difficult to realize. And you trade it for something tangible that you can actually achieve, but it, it's a lot more specific. In being more specific, is it compromised? Is it optimized? Uh, the, the product is optimized. The, the, the vision is possibly compromised. Uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I think it's the product that ultimately has, has the value, right? What, what's a vision without a product? So mm -hmm. Yeah, in business. Mm. Exactly. Mm. Right. I mean, academia is, is full of visions without products. And, you right. know, right. probably that's for the best. <laughs> There's a lot of... A lot of um, conceptual models that the world is better off that they're not realized anywhere. Slava wanted me to ask you if your book was in any way inspired by Hopscotch by Julio Cortazar. Uh, no, no. Uh, <laughs> Simple answer. <laughs> I think it was something about the structure of the book, uh, that there being two portions that can be read in any order. Hopscotch. Uh, right. I think uh, the, the translation in, into my native language is somewhat different. And I have heard about that book um, when I was, so, so after I have published uh, Flock Without Birds, but uh, uh, it, it wasn't an influence back then. Speaking of translation, I, I assume you wrote the book in Czech and then had it translated? That's right. Yes. Um, the translation is excellent. Whoever did the translation, uh, there's a literary style there that, you know, there's a voice to it that is just very clear. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. It, it's, it, it was a process. Uh, it, it, there wasn't one translator, basically. It, it's, it also, it differs with, um, the white book differs from the black book uh, in terms of the translation, because I actually originally wrote the black book in English. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, then I was translating it into Czech when I was publishing it in Czech. Yeah. Uh, with the white book, it was the other, other way around. I, I wrote it in Czech and then I had a translator translated into English. And then it actually took me about eight years to, uh, to, to turn the Czech version into the English version because I... So which, which uh -huh. is the story and which is the treatise? Uh, right. So the story is the white book. And okay. uh, one, one of them is called story. One of them mm -hmm. is called book, right? So right. the black one is the book and the white one is the story of the book. Right. So you wrote the, the book in English? Uh, yes, that's correct. Yes, yes. And then had it translated into, or translated it yourself, I assume, into Czech. I, and then you mm -hmm. wrote the story or the narrative of the book mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
in Czech and had it translated into English. I had it translated to English uh, by uh, by someone who is actually a, a musical composer. And so we had lots of interesting discussions on the nature of translation. Um, and he was, you know, likening it a lot to, to basically conducting um, someone else's music, right? So, uh, music that someone else um, wrote. And uh, so when he finished the translation, that was almost like the starting point. Uh, then... <laughs> then, then I went through the whole text. Uh, then uh, there were two editors working on that. I realized I really need to change it for the English audience and to streamline it somewhat, uh, make the story somewhat more clear uh, and, and the ideas in the book. And uh, so uh, I also shortened it by about one third. Okay. So in some sense, the final English version is a fairly different book. Uh, it's almost like a translation, I think, into a culture rather than just in, into a language of that original Czech cultural version. <laughs> <laughs> so the, uh, the Czech version uh -huh. I, I read has sold 10,000 copies, which in the Czech Republic, that's a best-selling book. That's, that's right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So uh, what's it like, you know, being a, a well-known, uh, well-read author in a small place and then, you know, trying to adapt your story to push it out into the much larger English speaking world. What's that been like? I, I continuously have this feeling of how huge the United States and, and overall the, the English speaking milieu basically is. It's, it's to an extent overwhelming uh, because before I published my book in Czech, nobody knew me. Mm -hmm. And with one book, I was sort of able to get connected into, into the literary and intellectual center, basically, of, of the country, in a way. That has to do with the fact that, you know, living in Prague means you can meet everyone and, and uh, it's, it, you take a year or two and you simply plug in into, into whatever is happening there. And uh, so th that was actually quite an easy task. In trying to to somehow approach the, the US and English-speaking audience, I... I have to focus uh, completely differently. Um, it's almost like, you know, I'm, I'm quite glad that we're having this deep discussion because I think it works as a pretty good filter. So, you know, wh whoever thinks this podcast is way over their head and, and just, uh, just so many words and just yeah. so boring, right? Uh, that's perfect. Like, <laughs> that's, you know, they don't have to struggle with the book. Uh, that's fine, right? Oh, I see uh, what you're saying. So, so if, they, if this conversation doesn't, yeah, doesn't bother if your it doesn't, bed, don't if bother it doesn't, reading it. Exactly. <laughs> don't worry about it. Like, they're, you know, they're much uh, more readable uh, stories for sure mm -hmm. uh, if, if this just doesn't work. So, and at the same time, like, if these are topics that are of interest, great, then let's, you know, let's connect. This is the small network of, I think, a couple of thousand of people in the whole English speaking world that I am, that I'm looking for. I think there might be more than that. Ah, wow. That's yeah. amazing. I, I'm no, constantly, I mean, if you, if you look constantly at the underestimating yeah. how large, you know, the country and the culture is. Are you familiar with uh, Brett Weinstein or no, I'm thinking of Eric Weinstein. Yes. Yes. So he's not podcasting anymore as a host, but he still appears on a lot of other people's podcasts. And his he has very high level 
uh, discourse with you know the people who host him, and th- those shows have very large audiences. So I-, I think there's a larger pool of people who would be interested in you know conversation on these topics than you might imagine at first blush. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. All so. Right. You know, well, I, I would love to continue talking to you, but I'm sure Slava, who's going to edit this, is just grinding his teeth because we're well into the second hour at this point, or maybe even past that. So, uh, uh, Philip Dusik, this has been a, a real joy. I hope we can talk again sometime. Likewise. Thank you, KMO. I'll look forward to next time. That was Philip Dusick, and what you heard was a conversation, a basically a one-hour conversation that was painstakingly extracted from a two-hour-plus conversation that Philip and I recorded. It was Pabverd podcast producer Slava Borisov who did the editing, and what you heard is not some portion of the conversation. It is taken from all parts of the conversation. If you want to hear the entire two-plus-hour conversation with Philip Dusick, then in the fullness of time, you'll be able to find a link to the, the YouTube video, which includes video, not just audio, of me and Philip talking, and that will be on the Padverb Podcast Telegram channel. You can find the Telegram channel by going to the Padverb website, scrolling down to the bottom of the page, clicking on Our Podcast, and then you'll find a full description of the Padverb Podcast, the podcast to which you are listening to, And in that description, you will see a link to the Telegram channel. So the channel's been pretty quiet so far. Most of the feedback that I've gotten from listeners has come in via irregular channels, like comments to my YouTube videos or comments posted to things that I've put up on Patreon. So we'd really like to get this Telegram channel established as the official and active forum for discussion about the topics that we cover here on the Padverb podcast. Now, I mentioned that it was Slava Borisov who did the painstaking work of editing this conversation. He calls himself a producer because he thinks that uh, producers should be good at editing and other technical skills as well. In addition to Slava, I'd like to thank executive producer Anna Haskell and producer Alina Voigt. Also, Slava created the music that you hear here in the Padverb podcast. All right, so what you heard in this conversation, as I say, I hadn't read the novel, so we couldn't really talk about the events of the novel. We, We needed to talk about the themes. I graduated from high school in 1986, and I spent a couple years at community colleges before I transferred to a university, and it was during my time at community college that I got interested in philosophy and took my first few philosophy courses, which became my major when I transferred to the university, and then I did graduate work in philosophy. So all of my time from community college, fresh out of high school through grad school, took place in the late 80s through the mid 90s. So I'm pretty far from my academic study of all of these topics now, but what you heard in this conversation really was a conversation about epistemology, ontology, the philosophy of mind, and really questioning, you know, the nature of God. And of all those, the uh, the topic that is closest to my heart is epistemology. How do we know what we know? What is knowledge anyway? Along these lines, I have crafted a poll question and I would invite you to participate in the poll. So the question is this. A familiar expression describes our eyes as windows to the soul, but eyes are not windows. They are fiendishly complicated machines which focus light on photoreceptive cells in the back of the eye. The activation of these cells gets turned into electrochemical signals which travel along the optic nerve to the brain. 
The brain takes those signals and uses them to inform our internal representation of the world. Our mental models of the world prioritize survival over truth. Given that understanding, do you agree that truth is a fallacy? Answer number one, yes. Objective reality is an incoherent notion. Answer number two, no. Our experience of the world is at least informed by an objective reality outside of ourselves. Our senses may not capture every aspect of reality, but they correspond with reality. And correspondence with reality is the definition of truth. Or three, I don't know. So I would encourage you to find our Telegram channel, participate in the poll, and if you're not satisfied with any of the three answers that I provided, provide your own. Start a conversation and maybe make some connections with like-minded people that you will enjoy corresponding with for years to come. One never knows. All right, that is all for this episode of the Pad Verb Podcast. If you have any response, definitely get in touch with us via the Telegram channel, or if that's too cumbersome for you, send me an email. My email address is kmo at padverb.com. All right, I will be back here one week from today with another conversation. Talk to you then.